How are you guys doing this morning? I love it. Me too. My name's Lindsay. I'm one of the teachers here at Kesed. If this is your first time visiting Kesed, I want to extend a special welcome to you. The rest of you, you've been here. Um, but it can be awkward or intimidating to, to check out church for the first time or to visit a new church for the first time. And so if that's you, um, it's awesome that you took that step. Today's message is not part of a series. We actually just wrapped up last weekend a series that we've been going through since the beginning of the year all about what we at Kesed believe uh, church is and what it means to be the church. And uh, next week we're kicking off a brand new series. And so today Danny said I could do whatever I want. Yay. It's a lot of power for me. I thought we could just go home. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> we're going to study John 6 together today. Uh, but before we get into John 6, I want to tell you uh, a story from my own life that's been on my mind for a few weeks because a few weeks ago I was hanging out with some friends and someone had the idea to go around the table and have everyone share one of their most embarrassing stories. I was having trouble picking. <laughs> um, I have been blessed, blessed in my short life to have uh, many stories of times where I've made a fool of myself. So the story I ended up telling them is this one that I'm going to tell you right now. Let me set the scene. 18-year-old Lindsay has just graduated high school. Um, she's recently become a legal adult. She's feeling pretty good about herself. Um, and she's just started leading the youth worship team at our church, at the church I attended at the time. And in this church, um, we had practice on Wednesday nights for the band. And the other thing that would happen on Wednesday nights is the college guys would play basketball. And our sanctuary doubled as the gymnasium. So the youth team would practice up here on the stage, and all the college guys would play ball down below. It was like a big space. And so on this particular Wednesday, I was running late, which is something I do often. And um, so I show up to the church with my arms full of sheet music, because we didn't have iPads back then. And um, I walked into the sanctuary, and the first person I saw was my crush of the last seven years, Mark. <laughs> Mark was the pastor's son. He had curly hair. He played the drums. He was just a dream, you know what I'm saying? Um, and my relationship with him previously was that when I was like 10, he would babysit me because he was several years older than me. But now I was an adult, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> this was my chance um, to show him that he could take me seriously. Um, and so I started to walk through the sanctuary, keeping it cool. And as if in slow motion, I see Mark running towards me. Except he's looking over his shoulder to receive a pass from someone. And so he collides with me, and my papers go flying, and kind, handsome Mark leans down to pick up my papers, and he hands them back to me, and he says, I'm so sorry, I didn't see you there. And I saw my moment, and I gazed up into his eyes and said, that's okay, I'm used to being tackled. <laughs> um... What? <laughs> I've never been tackled in my life. 
The moment the words left my lips, I knew I would be alone forever. <laughs> Mark, Mark looked confused and perhaps concerned. And he said, well, okay then. And he ran off and we never dated and that was the end of that story. <laughs> oh, um, I share this story because it's a hopefully funny example of something that we're going to encounter today in our text. And that is that discomfort forces decision. Discomfort forces decision. Think about it this way. Every time we experience discomfort in life, it's a turning point. When I experience the discomfort of being dehydrated, I get to choose if I'm going to grab a glass of what my body really needs, which is water, or keep drinking coffee like I usually do. If I'm uncomfortable with the amount of vulnerability someone is asking of me in a relationship, my discomfort forces me to make a decision to press into that which scares me or exit the relationship. Danny taught a few weeks ago on the prevalence in this room um, of church hurt, that there's a lot of people here that have been hurt by church, and church has become a place of discomfort for many of us. And that's another example of discomfort that forces a decision. We could respond to our hurt by giving up on church or even on God, or we could press into our own healing and figure out how to move forward. Mark responded to the discomfort of my awkward comment by exiting the conversation. I can't blame him. <laughs> I responded to my own discomfort with further awkwardness and avoided Mark for weeks. However, there is a discomfort far more significant than social awkwardness. When our very bodies cause us to question God, what I mean is, the needs and longings and pains that we experience in our daily lives bring us crashing headfirst into big questions about God. Particularly because there's no way for us to remain neutral when we encounter Jesus. He's polarizing. In the Gospels, we read story after story of how Jesus made people uncomfortable everywhere he went. All people. The religious leaders were uncomfortable with him. The zealots, people who wanted to overthrow the Roman government, were uncomfortable with him. The tax collectors, who were people who had turned traitor against their own nation to partner with Rome, were uncomfortable with him. And that discomfort forced a decision upon those people. For the people like the religious leaders who were intent on maintaining control of their lives and their society, their discomfort led them to reject Jesus. For the tax collectors, the sinners, the outcasts, the people who were desperate for change in their lives, their discomfort brought them near to Jesus to follow him. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to John 6? And if you don't, the text will be on the screens. Our passage today opens with one of the most famous stories in the Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. Fun fact, the feeding of the 5,000 is actually the only story that appears in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right before Jesus feeds the 5,000, he offends the Pharisees, as he often does, 
by breaking the Sabbath and then being like, well, I'm God, I can break the Sabbath. (laughs) And so they try to kill him, and Jesus withdraws to the wilderness of the Galilee region. We have a lot of text to get through today. I think John 6 is about 70 verses. Um, We won't read them all. We're going to be tourists in John 6 today and just stop at specific points of interest. So join me in John 6, 1. After this, that is after the Pharisees try to kill Jesus, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. We're pausing here because there's a clue in these opening lines that's going to unlock the rest of this chapter for us today. It's this one word, Passover. I say this, I think, every time I teach here, but the biblical authors hardly ever include details when they're telling a story. So when they do, we need to pay attention because that detail is intentional and important. John packed his gospel, the whole book of John, with references to Exodus. So much so that you basically have to keep the story of the Exodus when God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt in the back of your mind to understand all the layers of what's happening in John. John is a genius storyteller. So when he mentions Passover here, it's a signal to us as readers, like, ding, 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 remember, We're talking about the Exodus, even as we're talking about Jesus. This will get clearer. Passover is the holiday that Jewish people continue to recognize that celebrates the Exodus, and it occurs three times in the Gospel of John. The first time is in John 2, when Jesus goes into the temple and flips tables because He's angry that the Jewish people are using Yahweh's house of worship as a place to profit and make money. Here in John 6 is the second time. And the last time is during Jesus' crucifixion. Each mention of Passover is like a bookmark in John's gospel. So you can think of them that way. This is a bookmark that something really important is happening, and this story is one of those. Now, the first and last Passovers are like bookends because they both take place in Jerusalem. This is the middle Passover, and it's not in Jerusalem. We find ourselves in the wilderness. Join me in John 6, 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. 
Now, there are so many incredible details in this story, but we don't have time to unpack them all. We know from Mark's account of this story that by the time Jesus asks his disciples where they should get food, he's already been teaching them a long time. It's probably been a full day, and now it's getting late, and they're out in the wilderness, and everybody's hungry. But like Philip says, it would take 200 denarii to feed this horde. That's about eight months' wages. Can you imagine? Eight months' salary. But then Jesus does the impossible. The text says there were 5,000 men present, which means that including women and children, there were probably anywhere from 15 to 20,000 people that Jesus just single-handedly fed with some kid's lunch, which is cool. I mean, Jesus is pretty awesome. Here's what I want to propose to you today. Whenever, and I mean every time Jesus does a miracle, he's not just showing off. Jesus is God come in the flesh. And everything God does is purposeful and multi-layered. As my mother often says, God is always multitasking. Every miracle of Jesus shows us two things. Two things. Number one, at base level, it shows us what God is capable of, what God can do. But if you dig a little deeper, every miracle of Jesus reveals something about who God is. So, if we apply that to the feeding of the 5,000, we'll see first some highlights of what God is capable of. Here are some things that this miracle shows us our God can do. First, our God is not afraid of insufficiency, our own or that of our resources. So when your needs come knocking, remember that the only one afraid of your insufficiency is you. God does not share your fears. Whatever we bring to the table is enough. Or rather, it's not enough. And that's okay because Jesus is the God who multiplies meager means. Our responsibility is to bring whatever we have. When we bring our meager, insufficient time, energy, love, patience, forgiveness, finances, physical and emotional health, you name it, to Jesus, he can multiply those things beyond what we could do and we will be filled and so will others because that's what he does. Everything about this story at the beginning is not enough. Both the physical resources at hand and the disciples' faith, they have no concept of what God is about to do. But by the end of the story, Jesus, in typical fashion, has flipped everything on its head. And suddenly, people are eating as much as they wanted. John says they had eaten their fill. In the Greek, that word fill means filled to bursting. Like they physically couldn't hold any more food. It's how we're all going to feel in a few hours. There's something else here that really got me as I was studying this. You see that in verse 12, Jesus has the disciples fill up 12 empty baskets with the leftovers of the meal so that nothing will be wasted, it says. They fill up these baskets, presumably, so that they can continue to feed people with this food. Don't miss this. Jesus is Yahweh, creator God come in the flesh, and he has the entire cosmos at his disposal. Though the Lord 
has lavish abundance to meet the needs of all people. He will let nothing be wasted. Not only is Jesus not afraid of your insufficiency, but Jesus doesn't leave leftovers. You know those leftovers in your life? The remains of that relationship that you thought was going to last and didn't, and now you're like, what do I do with all this? What about the crumbs of that thing that you once counted on? The experiences that feel pointless and like nothing good or useful or helpful or holy will ever come from those things. Bring them to Jesus, the one who wastes nothing. This is what Jesus is capable of. But remember, there's something more going on here. There's something going on here with Exodus, and there's something Jesus is trying to show his first disciples and us about who God is. Can you think of another time in Israel's history that is strikingly similar to this moment? Perhaps a group of thousands of people, men, women, and children, getting reacquainted with their God after 400 years where he seems to have been absent or silent. Perhaps a group of thousands, fresh off the eating of the first Passover meal, out in the middle of nowhere, in the wilderness, and they get hungry. And they look at their prophet Moses and say, where can we get bread out here in the wilderness? And suddenly miraculously, bread falls from heaven in the form of manna. I'm talking about Exodus 16. Right after God has delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt with the ten plagues, he leads them out into the wilderness, parts the waters of the Red Sea, defeats Pharaoh's army again after they come chasing after Israel, and even after all those miracles, they start to feel the pangs of hunger and they freak out. And I get it. Who likes to be hungry? I don't like to be hungry. I don't really get hangry. I just shut down. So if you try to talk to me when I'm hungry, I don't think I'll have anything to say. I feel it, is what I'm saying. I feel for them. But God rains down manna and provides. And oh, by the way, they can only collect a certain amount of manna every day so that there's no leftovers. There's just, the Bible is awesome. (laughs) Now here in John, are thousands of hungry Israelites in the wilderness hoping for deliverance from Rome, and Jesus is here bringing miraculous bread from heaven. The Messiah that Israel has been waiting for for thousands of years was supposed to be some kind of a new Moses who would bring about an even greater exodus. That's what Israel's prophets had foretold. So it's no wonder that in verse 14, the crowds are like, Jesus is the prophet. He's the new Moses. They got partway there. But they made the mistake that we all make so often, which is we are looking for God to show up in a certain way. And so we assume when God moves, this is what we've been waiting for. It is certainly what we have been waiting for, but it is never exactly as we expect. N.T. Wright says this, The bread and the fish that Jesus had distributed to the crowds were there to lead the eye, the mind, and the heart to the true gift of God to his people then and there. 
They were there to open up their understanding to the fact that the new Passover, the new Exodus, was taking place right in front of them and that Jesus was leading it. Jesus is not just a good teacher, and he's not just any God. By performing a miracle that so directly ties to the Exodus, Jesus is showing himself to be the God of the Exodus, the delivering God, the shackle-breaking God, the God with the power to send ten plagues and overturn the most powerful nation in the ancient world, the God who kept his promises to Israel's forefathers for thousands of generations. In fact... Jesus goes on to make this point more explicitly in the rest of John 6. Jesus, although more than a teacher, is an incredible teacher. You know when you're trying to teach a concept to someone and so you give them an illustration, something more concrete that they can hold on to? The feeding of the 5,000 is one big illustration One big divine object lesson for Jesus' next teaching later in chapter 6. We're going to skip ahead a few verses. The crowds show back up literally the next day. They've followed Jesus across the lake to Capernaum and they're asking for another sign. And before we get too down on them, let's admit to ourselves that we are this exact same way. I feel like so often I go before the Lord and I'm like, I know you provided for me yesterday. I know I experienced your grace yesterday, but today I don't trust it. Show me again. And God is remarkably gracious, and we can be so quick to forget. Let's look at John 6, 30. So they said to him, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you see this? Jesus is explaining the point of this miracle to them. He's saying, your ancestors were starving in the wilderness without bread, and Moses didn't give them bread. God did. Jesus is saying, guess what? You're still starving, and you don't even know it. And God has sent you bread so that you won't starve, and it's me. The fact that Jesus has just satisfied their physical hunger right before making this bold claim shows that he's confident the people before him won't have to look very far to see that he's right. It's like he's saying, you don't have to take my word for it. Look at how your other sources of sustenance have worked out for you. Just feast your eyes on the wreckage of the other things you thought would satisfy you. Are you satisfied? Just like your ancestors ate the manna and still died, the things you've put your trust in have all eventually failed. The traditions, the ceremonies, the legalism, the rituals. Or if he was talking to us, 
the medications, the sex, the explosive anger, the alcohol, the overeating, the undereating, the politics, the social causes, the hobbies, the adrenaline rush, none of it lasts. Your fathers had to gather manna day after day after day just to survive, and you're still doing that. But not if you feast yourselves on me. I'm here to stay. We should be hearing not just echoes of Exodus 16 here, but Genesis 3. The first time humans put their eyes on food that looked like it was going to satisfy their deepest longings, except it was the very food God had told them would kill them instead. Their choice about what they would eat represented who they believed. Adam and Eve demonstrated at the tree of knowing good and evil that they trusted their own judgment more than God. The Israelites in Exodus demonstrated that they trusted their own judgment more than God. And here too, many of Jesus' first disciples trusted their own judgment more than God. Look at what happens next. This is John 6, starting in verse 53. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And then verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. What Jesus was saying to these crowds was too hard for many of them, so they left. And at face value, we can kind of empathize, right? I mean, Jesus is literally standing up there being like, if you want to live forever, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And that sounds pretty gross. Like, that's cannibalism, Jesus. It sounds gross to us, and even more so, there were lots of things in Jewish dietary laws that made this deeply offensive to them. We don't have time to get into it. But as weird as this sounds to us, it was ten times weirder for Jesus' Jewish audience. And the thing is, whether it's this strange thing that Jesus says or something else, we are all going to come to this moment where Jesus says something to us, point something out in us or require something from us that feels too hard. And we have a choice in those moments of what we will do. In fact, Jesus has a conversation with the 12 disciples about this very thing right after all these people leave. Look at verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This had to be a tender moment between Jesus and his disciples. You can picture it, right? Jesus is standing before this crowd of thousands, and as he offers not a commodity, Not some kind of gift or divine act, but himself. 
as he offers himself and his literal body that we know he will shortly sacrifice for the life of the world, people begin to walk away in droves, shaking their heads, rolling their eyes. They're disappointed. Jesus offers himself and they're disappointed. And so often, Jesus offers himself and we're disappointed. Jesus, the God of the Exodus, has seen this behavior before. Just like we see in John 6, in Exodus 16, God miraculously takes care of Israel's hunger by giving them bread. And then you turn the page to Exodus 17, and Israel's like, well, now we have no water. We would have been better off in Egypt. We should turn back. Same thing here. Jesus gives these people bread from heaven, promises to satisfy their eternal thirst, then says something that's hard for them, and they're like, this is too hard, let's turn back. And Jesus, grieved at the choice these people are making, turns to his close friends and says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter, God bless Peter, I love him. He is the most impulsive person. And sometimes it gets him in trouble and other times it comes out of him in this beautiful, bold, childlike trust. And he blurts out, where the heck else are we going to go, Jesus? You have the words that give life. I want to share something with you all today in the spirit of honesty and to give us an opportunity to really know each other. Um, I hate public vulnerability. I love when other people do it. I love when Danny does it, as he so often does. I hate doing it myself. Um, but the Lord has been bringing me to the end of John 6 repeatedly in the last year or two, specifically to this question, are you going to leave me too? And I have been fighting tooth and nail to hang on and say with Peter, I'm not going anywhere. The last few years have been hard. If you were here Sunday at the worship night, um, I shared about a period of my life a few years ago where I just felt like I, I kept getting knocked down. And you know what I'm talking about. It's like those seasons where one thing happens and you start to kind of pick yourself back up and then another thing happens and you're like, oh, okay, here we go. Um, I have felt in the last couple years like I'm back in one of those seasons. Um, there's been a lot of pain in my own life and I've watched a lot of my dearest friends leave the faith and it's been really lonely. And I hit a really low point just this past holiday season where I felt like I was hearing these two questions. I know, she hears voices. Um, <laughs> and one, clearly the voice of the enemy asking me, is this really working for you? This whole following Jesus thing, is this satisfying? Is it what you want? And then underneath that seductive voice, because he so often speaks so much more softly, the still, small voice of Jesus asking me, are you going to leave me too? And again and again, I have come to my knees and said, Lord, to whom else would I go? 
but I'm still walking this out. This is ongoing. And it's hard, you know. For the Israelites in Exodus and the Israelites in Jesus' day, and for me, I can tell you, the deepest temptation to turn back is going to come from your own body, from your own discomfort, from your own longing, from your needs. You know, we don't have to be in the wilderness to get hungry, to get thirsty, to feel like I'm dying alone out here and where is God? What's your hunger today? What's your thirst? And what are you reaching for to satisfy it? The Israelites in Exodus and the Israelites in Jesus' day turned back not because God was not who he said he was. They turned back because God was not who they thought he would be. They had created some sort of expectation, some sort of image of who they thought God was and how they thought God should act. And then here comes Yahweh God who takes them the long way through the wilderness. And Jesus who says, I'm actually not here to deliver you from Rome, but from your sins. And here's Jesus today saying, I know I'm doing this in a way you didn't expect, but you know me, even if you don't understand what I'm doing. And it's okay that that's hard. Discouragement is not the enemy, but unbelief is. And so I think we have to acknowledge the discouragement of our circumstances and still speak God's truth to them. When I hit my really low point around Christmas, I felt that I had reached a point where I could no longer speak God's truth to myself and my circumstances. And so I reached out to friends who I knew could do that for me. I texted a couple women who know God's word and God's spirit and who know me. And, you know, I think that's what we all need so much of the time is friends who know God's word, God's spirit, and us. And I was just painfully honest with them. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm being tempted with. Here's where I'm struggling. I need you to pray for me. (laughs) And I need you to tell me what's true. And they did. And you know what? Those women carried me. They carried me for several weeks until I was strong enough to get up and start walking on my own again. It's always easier to encourage someone else than it is to encourage yourself. And so if you're in danger of falling away, reach out because it is so much easier to trust someone else than it is to rely on our own perception of what's true. As we start winding down, I want to ask you these questions again. What's your hunger today? What's your thirst And what are you reaching for to satisfy it? We have all these ways, these things we try to do to satisfy our hunger, and like manna, they don't last. We self-medicate. What is that thing you keep going back to that takes the edge off for a while but doesn't last? I wonder what might happen if you were honest with yourself and with Jesus and invited him into that space with you. This imagery that Jesus employs in John 6, that he's the bread of life, that his body and blood are what truly satisfies, this should sound familiar because these are the elements we take in communion. 
as I invite the worship team back up, I want to just unpack this together for a second. Communion, the bread and the wine, that represent Jesus' body and blood, weren't just symbols that Jesus randomly picked on the eve of his death. They're elements of the Passover meal. They are Jesus' way of saying once again, I am the delivering God who has been pursuing humanity all along. God is not doing something new when Jesus shows up. Jesus is the manifestation, the fulfillment of the God whose own longing for our ultimate good drives him to seek us out again and again and again. This imagery we see in John 6 and we encounter again in communion should fundamentally reorient the way we think about salvation and the entire Christian life. Salvation is not this thing that we receive. That would make belief just mental agreement with who Jesus is. And then God hands us this thing called salvation. Salvation is a person. The example Jesus gives us of salvation is eating. That we would take Jesus into ourselves in this intensely personal, intimate, mysterious way that he would become part of us and we a part of him, that he would be our very life source, our nourishment, that he would share in our lives and we would share in his. So as we conclude today, I want to invite you to come to the table. The worship team is going to play and you can sing along or you can just listen, but there are communion stations around the room and when you're ready, get up, grab the bread and the cup, go back to your seat and take it as you feel ready to. Because communion is a picture of salvation, these elements are only for those who have committed their lives to Jesus. If that's not you, that's okay. We're glad you're here. But this isn't just a symbol. It's a confession of being united to the one we believe is life itself. You can take the elements on your own while the band plays, but I want to encourage you. This is a good opportunity to do business with Jesus. To take him your hunger, your thirst, your most desperate need, your longing. To take him the food you've been consuming to satisfy your own hunger. To take him your leftovers that you don't know what to do with. And to invite him to fill you in the way that only he can. To repurpose the fragments of your life in the way that only he can. Because to whom else would we go? Let me pray for us. I want to read over you the words of the prophet Isaiah as we pray. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good 
and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Father, we pray in response. We pray in response to the words of Isaiah this morning. We are here. We have come hungry. We have come thirsty. We have come needy. We have come to you ready to be filled. Oh, Jesus, would you fill us in the way that only you can? Take the things that we have sought our satisfaction in, the things that we thought were living that are not really living. Take the fragments, the leftovers that we don't know what to do with. Repurpose these things in the way that only you can, Lord, for you waste nothing. We confess our trust, Lord, confident that you will do what you promise in your word to do. And we love you. We love you. In your name, Jesus, amen. Like a rushing wind, would you breathe within my heart? Would you hold me in your arms, arms, cause I need you, oh how I need you, I need your love like I need And I need your love like I need breath inside of my lungs, burning my heart just like a fire. Come and take me over, Jesus, draw me closer to your heart. Through the I can hear you call my name, name. And when the night gets rough, I will still sing out your praise, praise. Cause I need you. Oh, how I
Father God, thank you so much for this beautiful moment. 
God, we are honored to be here in your presence, to sing songs, to praise you, to lift your name on high, God. We thank you for this opportunity to come together as a family, as a body of believers, walking from all different places of life, God. We get to come, we have a place at the table with you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for sending your son for us. We love you. I pray that you would be with every heart and every soul in this room as they go out and remember this moment they had with you. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much for coming out with us today. We love you. We are excited to see you again next week. Have an awesome day, okay?